I'm Oshan, and welcome to the Musing Mind podcast. So about a couple months ago, I was reading a book called The Spirit of Digital Capitalism, and I hit upon one of these great kind of chains of references and footnotes, which led me to another book uh, published last year called Algorithms and Subjectivity on the Subversion of Critical Knowledge by an Israeli professor of sociology and media theory named Edan Fisher. And right away, I saw the book as one that fits really well with the kinds of themes the podcast has been exploring. So I dug in, and Adan and I settled on a date to record. And during that time, reading his book is when you know the most recent spark of AI progress set off with ChatGPT and Bing and so on, mid-journey. So I had this really remarkable experience of reading a book about the subterranean effects of increasingly algorithmic environments on how we experience ourselves and the political horizons for our lives during probably the biggest technological leap forward of my lifetime. Um, so I didn't plan it this way, but the conversation was was really well-timed. You know, when a lot is changing quickly, I think it's easy to get caught up in the stream of headlines around the changes that are easier to see, that are more legible. And what Adan's work does is invites us to reflect on the deeper changes that happen, you know, more or less out of sight but nevertheless can completely transform something you know, so intimate and, and near to the quality of our lives as subjectivity itself. Uh, so more formally, Adan is a professor at the Open University of Israel in the Department of Sociology. He's written books on subjects like capitalism in the digital age and the spirit of networks. And as you'll hear in the conversation, he, he thinks about subjectivity in a very specific way as a sort of political project, which uh, turns out to be really useful, you know, as a way of expanding that more familiar notion of, of subjectivity as a synonym for consciousness, especially in lights of the themes that, that we usually talk about here. And towards the end, you'll also hear that Iran is, is actually somewhat <clears throat> um, pessimistic about the prospects for increasingly algorithmic environments to, to be able to serve as, you know, emancipatory positive forces in our lives as tools that augment rather than detract. Um, and I'm more optimistic. You know, I chalk up a lot of the case for concern to the incentive structures and the lack of, of democratic data governance, which are both things that are subject to change. You know, whereas he explores how the, the very constitution of algorithms runs counter to how the Enlightenment framed the project of freedom. So we have a great little uh, generative disagreement there, I think. But even with that, you know, I felt the way in which he's thinking about these deep subterranean effects of the kinds of worlds that are clearly rushing into being is really important. And I think he sets this scene for what's happening and, and also what could continue to happen if nothing changes. And the, the conversation actually left me wanting to do a follow-up with, with a legal scholar, right, on how deeply different regimes of data governments or, you know, public options for AI research or services could could lead to different outcomes, you know, to give us a sense of of all the different ways we might steer this rush of innovation towards richer, freer, more empowered lives for all. Uh, in other news, a few weeks ago, we finally launched a project uh, that we've been working on for, for years now. It's called the Library of Economic Possibility. It's a knowledge base that gathers research on high leverage economic policies that have not enjoyed the mainstream spotlight in the past few decades. Um, and it makes the research available in this kind of you know, new kind of database that we're hoping will make it easier to have informed debates around policies that can help design the next economy. So if you're interested in that realm, you can find that at economicpossibility.org. We'd love to hear any feedback. 
And finally, uh, I am incredibly grateful and fortunate to have Patreon supporters that make this podcast possible. So thank you to all of you, old and new, uh, for helping make this show something that can exist. And if you find value in any of these conversations and you have the means and you want to help bring more of them into the world, you can head over to patreon.com slash Oshanjaro and chip in one, two, three bucks a month. And all right, uh, the, the last thing I'll call out is that uh, the, the way the universe shook out on the day of recording, we had two audio snags. One was on my end, which means that I had to re-record a few segments of my own voice. Uh, and since I'm not an audio engineer, it's pretty painfully obvious where I did so. Uh, so you'll catch me in the act a few times throughout the episode with kind of a big switch in audio vibes. And all I can say is, uh, so it goes. And then a second, um, Iran had some spatial constraints that meant every now and then you'll hear some kitchen activity, whether it's you know a pot or some chopping. So what I'll invite you to do, rather than experiencing these as interruptions, is to imagine that you're sitting in an Iranian cafe with Iran, and the place is bustling, and the kitchen is open air, and you're having this conversation, right? You're sitting at a table, and the random sounds every now and then are just part of that bustling environment, right? We're enmeshed within life as it's happening, rather than existing in some conversation that's suspended and isolated from the rest of the ongoing world. Okay, that's that's what I'm going to go for anyway. So please join me at the table with Aaron Fisher. Aaron Fisher, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So if I were to put my Charles Darwin hat on, I could say that if you fundamentally transform an environment the evolutionary entanglement between organisms and their environments, that evolutionary logic will tell us that all the living systems bound up in that changed ecosystem will also undergo a process of transformation as they continue to live and adapt through the changes to their environment. And you've written a book, well, a couple of books actually, about how the introduction and profusion of algorithms in our environments is leading to transformations in human beings. And in particular, your latest book looks at how living in increasingly algorithmic environments transforms and even undermines subjectivity or consciousness. So for anyone who's listened to the podcast before, you'll recognize these questions as ones that, that I'm really deeply interested in. But I want to pause for a moment before diving in there, just to humanize this conversation and these questions a little bit. I'm curious what it is that brought you to be interested in these kinds of questions and this larger constellation of, of topics that you focus on. Mm. Well, first of all, thanks for putting me, uh, you know, in one row with uh, Darwin. <laughs> that's that's a first and probably a last. So. You mean what, 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 what was my interest specifically now in algorithms or more generally in, in this, in the link between humans and technology? Right. Maybe let's start with, with the broader view with humans and technology, and then we can narrow into algorithms. So actually my interest was, or an accident, I would say, I was actually interested in globalization. I was starting my PhD in the beginning of the millennia in New York and moving from Israel. And one of the big topics was globalization. And so I was really interested in kind of political culture. And, and I 
started, and I actually wrote this, um, you know, very preliminary paper, which I called uh, Technology as Ideology. So thinking about how this technological device doesn't just do something in terms of, I don't know, transferring files, but also allows us to imagine new political constellations. And then one of my mentors told me, you know, there, there's someone already wrote this paper. It's uh, Habermas. Uh, it has this piece, uh, Jürgen Habermas, called Technology as Ideology. And so that was sort of my entry point into this idea of how technology works as an ideological factor, meaning how technology is, is not just a, you know it's is not just a thing that does something, but it really partakes in in what it's constructing in a way. So uh, how it allows us to, as I said, to imagine new forms of life, how it legitimizes new forms of life, so that, for example, you know, new new ways of um, new modes of employment could be legitimized by saying, hey, you know, this is how the internet works. So that was, mm -hmm. I think, my entry point into this uh, subject. Yeah. And so how did, then what was the transition from that kind of broad constellation to bring you to look at algorithms specifically? I started out as a sociologist and looking at, let's say, the social context of media, of digital media, and so suddenly I started shifting also a little bit my gaze and started to look a little bit more, looking at different facets more internally. I moved from looking at, let's say, the big questions of technology as ideology to looking at sort of into the um, mechanics, let's say, of media. And this was, I think, also my entry point to algorithms because I was really curious about this new, um, you know, new thing called um, big data and what it can do in the world. And my sort of initial question was pretty simple. I mean, there was, again, this idea that if you have a lot of data about a phenomena, then you can know it. You can understand it. Then I thought, well, what, what is the nature of this knowledge? And I think especially I was interested in what does it mean to know? What does it mean for a platform, for example, Netflix or any digital platform, to know its users? Because this was the big thing, personalization. So... Again, the, there's a very simple answer, right? There's, they, they just have a lot of data, so they know who you are. But how do you translate data into knowledge? It's really not that straightforward. And so that was, again, my entry point into this. Um, the last few years of my, my work has been to really try to find out or to grapple with this new kind of knowledge. Yeah, I really like the way that you frame this kind of overall question, which is the way I saw it, you know, for for the past few centuries, at least, there has been a relatively consistent theme of society aiding individuals and vice versa in expanding the scope of our freedoms. And as you argue, you know, a critical ingredient in that 
has been a self that is involved in the production and the pursuit of the various kinds of reflection and activity and self-knowledge that go into that. And algorithms and, and the era of capitalism that they really usher in, you, you suggest really shakes up this whole project, that this kind of age-old maxim of, of know thyself, which was always taken as you know the North Star towards wisdom and freedom, but that now algorithms seem to promise a different kind of freedom. They uphold even a different justification for capitalism, as, as you've written about, you know, the promise of society to individuals. So there, there's a lot of defining terms that I want to get into. But before we do that, maybe just at a high level, how do you think about this, this different kind of freedom that algorithms and this kind of networked uh, society promise? I think it's really hard to nail it down. But I think there is something about, let's say, freedom from without, freedom from the outside, rather than freedom from within. So that's a different conception of what it means to be free, which we know, you know, to be free doesn't mean to be happy or to be satisfied. It's really something different. Sort of the type of freedom that we are promised with algorithms and these machines that know us is not what we, let's say, during modernity, during the Enlightenment, I'm not sure that's the same kind of freedom, which is about being able to transform ourselves or to yeah, better the human condition, not just in terms of having better material you know, conditions, but read ourselves of the things that hinder us, the things that um, sort of, um, yeah, I mean, I have a very, very sort of traditional Kantian modernist perception of freedom. And I think the freedom we're offered with digital media, with algorithms, with those machines is actually, is quite different. I mean, as I think one of the, one of the things that they, promise us, let's say, freedom in, in the sense of ridding ourselves from the toil of choosing and not just choosing a film, which film to use, uh, to see, to watch, or, uh, you know, what kind of, of, you know, what kind of, I don't know, what diet to, to pursue during your, your, your daily life. But, you know, the, the burden of having to choose between, let's say, right and wrong. So I would put it this way. Eventually, I think the real toil of modernity is that we had no external answers to the question, what should we do to be decent human beings? It's a question that you had to, you had to put yourself every day, all the time, and answer it yourself. And I think that puts, you know, modern human beings at a very, at unease. So freedom in that sense is not about leisure and it's not about being content, but about actually it's, it's a form of anxiety really to make a choice. What should you do? And that's always at the end of the day that the, there's always a political question behind it. How should we act not just as, as human beings, as individuals, but as a community, as a society, as a country. 
etc. Yeah, I, I really like this that that phrase and, and this kind of shift. If you think about the promise of let's say 20th century politics, you know, something I've done a lot of, even on this podcast, I've looked at the U.S. labor movement throughout the 20th century and the transformation of the demands they made, and it's really interesting. You, know, you can see. During that time, there was the promise was to rid us of the toil of of labor itself. Shorter working weeks, you know, uh, more technology would would automate production until the point that we all leave these wonderful lives of, of leisure. Um, and that vision declined, and that's a fascinating story in and of itself. But I, I like this framing of of what switched was from ridding ourselves of the toil of labor to ridding ourselves from the toil of, of choice. That, that makes a lot of sense Beautiful. to me. Beautiful. Um, and. And of course, you know, it's all bound up in the, in the transformations in our, in our information environments. And you can call it the move from scarcity to abundance or, or whatever you want. Um, and I'm even thinking back, there's, there's a great talk, I, I think it's very Schwartz, but you know, this idea of, of the paralysis of choice that we, we, we have this, I think, notion that the more choices we have, the better, because that means we have more optionality. But it is interesting because at a certain point, once that crosses a threshold, it does get difficult. It, I, I do think it manifests as a sort of labor to even in a very concrete form to be sitting on, I get home from work, I sit on my couch and I could learn about 8 million different topics. I could watch 8 million different shows. Like you know, there's so much you can do. And it is, I think a form of labor to then have to act in that moment. So that's a really interesting switch. I like how you frame that. So, okay. With, with that, I want to move into your specific terms a little bit. Cause I think they're really helpful to, <clears throat> excuse me, to make our way through this. Uh, I think we should define three terms to kind of set the, the table for the conversation. And these are uh, algorithms, critical knowledge, and subjectivity. Um, so let's start with the easier one. Let's start with algorithms. Um, we, you've touched on this a bit, but but these are this is a broad category. A lot of things fall into this. So when you talk about algorithms, w w are, are you focusing on recommendation algorithms in particular, or what do you mean? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm using really this very broad term and I could have used, you know, different terms such as uh, big data or, or just platforms, digital platforms. But the reason I used algorithms um, was really to focus on this switch from, let's say, one type of knowledge to another. I mean, we have different names for it. One is called data which is very, very, let's say, low-intensity information to translating it to knowledge, which is, let's say, high-intensity information, very, very thick. Uh, so algorithms are just, let's say, the um, mathematical tools that are making th those, you know, this switch. So that's why I was really... Mm -hmm. um, fond of this term. I think I'm using the term already in the book of interface algorithms because yeah because big data uh, is now producing knowledge and algorithms are producing knowledge of all sorts in medicine and uh, criminal justice system etc etc but i think what is really interesting was or what i focused on was what's happening on on media platforms where the user is really let's say I'm, I'm, I'm having, I'm doing like a, an air coat, but like is the king, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah supposedly right. that's, that's the, per, that's, that's the, um, that's where it's all focusing on, uh, giving the user what she wants. So, so yeah, that, that was my focus. My focus was on those 
machines that not only are making knowledge about us, but in some way reflect this knowledge back to us. So that when mm-hmm. you're, you know, when you when you're seeing the, um, um, I don't know, the Netflix recommendation or the YouTube recommendation or the kind of the kind of posts that you get on your social media on your favorite. Um, social networking sites, right? Twitter or mm-hmm. Facebook, etc. It also reflects to you how this platform sees you. So it's a kind of um, it's a kind of a mirror, I would say, that you don't know exactly how they got this information or how they got this idea about you. But you know, I'm using Amazon a lot, mostly. I don't know if to buy books, but mostly to actually discover new books. So I'm, I'm using those, those machines too, right? So I have this idea of I can look at what they're suggesting and get a sense of how they think about me. Yeah, let's, let's go on to uh, subjectivity next, because I think that yep. you know, the, the way that you write about it is really interesting. And I think very, very particular um, you know, as something reaching back to the Enlightenment. So, so how do you think about subjectivity? So subjectivity for me is a self that's, let's say, very aware of itself. How would I say that in English? Of its selflessness. <laughs> Does it make sense? No. Uh, the, of, 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 of its ontology, of a self that's aware of it being part of the world as an object in the world. So in a way, the way to subjectivity goes through being an object, noticing that you, uh, what you feel, it's also an object in the world. But but let me let me actually let me actually go through a different different route to explain that. So I'm thinking about subjectivity, maybe more or less as the self, as how we see ourselves. But I mean, you can say that human beings always had a sense of themselves, but subjectivity is more sort of a historical project that we have never reached. So subjectivity too, I would say, is a promise or kind of a horizon that was set up during modernity where, let's say, the center of freedom, the way to reach freedom was not through salvation, uh, some transcendental force, but actually through human beings through thinking. Yeah, you know, sometimes it's just really hard to get into those. It's really like when your daughter asks you, what is love? And you're like, what? <laughs> I, I know I know, yeah. I know, what it is, but do you really want me to explain that now? Um, I wonder, well, I wonder maybe a helpful, I, something that I was thinking mm-hmm. about in particular that I found really interesting in, in how you defined it. You know, you, you, you looked at subjectivity not as only a, basic descriptive fact about our minds, but as you mentioned, as a project, as a basis for political agency, as this kind of historically and socially constructed uh, structure of feeling, you know, as Raymond Williams would have it, this kind of site for the dialectic between freedom and, and domination. And I think I found this so interesting because it's so different from how I reflexively think about it, but it also fits really nicely, right? I tend to use the word subjectivity just as a, a synonym for consciousness, right? I, not as mm-hmm. maybe a historically specific project that you can trace to the Enlightenment, but as just 
you know, a descriptive feature of the phenomenology of being a living system, right? Subjectivity is what it feels like to be me. It's the texture of my mind in any given moment. But on the other hand, you know, uh, I was, I, when I was reading your chapter on this, I was thinking of the book by the German sociologist Hartmut Rosa, and it's called Resonance. Mm -hmm. And in that, in that book, he talks about seeing subjectivity as a kind of seismograph or even a thermometer. And then each of us, you know, with our own subjectivity are like these thermometers plugged in, not just to the earth, but to our social and political and economic worlds that we inhabit. And you can see the qualities of consciousness and subjectivity as almost readings of how all, all those fears are coalescing into you know, a relationship to the world. So I'm, I'm really curious how you see this, this relationship between subjectivity as a political, historical, socially constructed project. And, and you mentioned this a bit too, as a kind of biological you know, just basic understanding of, of being a mind in the world. I think the difference for me f between, as you say, an objective thing, you know, the phenomenology of self-knowledge and the way I use the term subjectivity is the dynamics of that. Because when you, in contrast to other objects, so when you look at a stone, your gaze doesn't actually change anything well. Physics would have it otherwise, but let's say in, in a very, very, yeah, I mean, that's, that's actually where it's coming from, I think, this way of thinking. But um, you look at a stone and nothing happens. You look at yourself and the very fact of looking at yourself changes you. So mm. one thing I would say is subjectivity is a dynamic process. That's why I think about it as a, a project and a horizon. You never reach that, but it opens up a terrain that you're supposed to walk walk towards. And actually, you know, we have a history of, you know, if you're thinking about technology, which is what I'm interested in, we have a history of technologies that were supposed to help us. It was either intentional sometimes or unintentional, but but all kinds of all kind of tools that actually help us enlarge our subjectivity so that become more aware of ourselves and through that change ourselves uh, the diary writing letter writing so all these technologies where you are supposed to reveal yourself to yourself and the idea was was not just to discover who you really are, but to, at that moment, also change who you are. So, so the, the, there's this, I think with subjectivity, what I try to capture is this kind of dynamics of, of being always in, in, on the move. And that's, I think, part of the argument about algorithms is that they actually, they actually hinder or kind of undermine our ability to look at ourselves and when you kind of outsource it or when you kind of externalize the gaze to these machines that look at us, you get a little bit more sort of like a still picture, something which is a little bit less dynamic and more just telling you, hey, this is who you are. You'll really like to watch cat videos on YouTube. That's who you are. And... It could be that I would also tell that to myself, 
hey, you know, I've been I've been watching too many too many too many cats lately. How about uh, doing something different for myself or a little bit more fruitful? So yeah, subjectivity for me was kind of a a human in the making. Always, always looking at yourself not only to discover who you already are, but to try to move towards who you could be, to move forward to who you could be, which is basically a more emancipated human being. So, I mean, just, just think about something like uh, a therapy session or psychology, psychotherapy, not just, not just the actual therapy, but as a movement, as a cultural and social movement, the idea is not just, you're not going there just to find out as you know, some people might mock it to find out that your parents did this to you. And no, you're doing, you're going there, you know, in order not just to know who you are, but in order to change who you are. So this, this form of this, this, yeah, subjectivity, it's, it's almost like a procedure or how would I call it? Like a, like a workshop for the self. Mm. I really like this this framing of subjectivity as a dynamic horizon, right? Especially if you think about the self-help bookshelves in a Barnes and Noble, you know, there's there's this idea that you have a single true authentic self that's waiting to be discovered. And you know, I find that that misleading because there is no static substantive thing that is oneself, right? Instead, as I think you're saying, what we experience as ourselves is an ongoing dynamic process. It's always under construction. So there's no self to be found. There's a self to be created, to be designed, to be nudged towards whatever horizons align with our values. And that ongoing process of construction is one that is always environmentally woven. So the idea that you can change yourself, you know, on one hand, I think has merit. It's important. We do have agency. On the other hand, it's kind of silly if you restrict your view of yourself to the boundaries of your skin. All right. So we've done algorithms and subjectivity. Let's get to critical knowledge, right? This is one of those elements that you write about where algorithms are directly affecting change. I mean, the subtitle of your book is the subversion of critical knowledge. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think knowledge really ties up both subjectivity and algorithms, right? Algorithms are, as I said, are about creating knowledge from or a new type of knowledge from data. And then subjectivity requires what I would call critical knowledge. So so let's talk, yeah, let's let's start to kind of deconstruct what do I mean by critical knowledge. Oh, that's that's another tough one, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Would it be something you can jump off of? But something that stuck out to me was really whether the self is is participating in the process or not. Is that one of the one of the key elements? Yeah, I think I think that's that's really that's that's one of the keys. The idea that that knowledge itself changes reality. Uh, because we are subjects, because we're not just, I mean, for a stone to know its conditions, or its phenomenology in the world would really not change anything about its phenomenology. Obviously, I'm kind of piggybacking on Hegel and Marx and the Frankfurt School. So 
Maybe go back to Marx, because I think he put it very, very neatly when he was talking about, about class and about historical materialism. And he made this distinction between um, class in itself and class for itself, right? So mm-hmm. class for him, it's an objective reality, right? If you look at the history of human beings, you can step back and as as a researcher, as a scientist, you can say, I can show you that, you know, the best way to explain this history is through understanding it as two classes, blah, 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 changing. Okay. But then he said, in order for that to change, which is what he was interested in, people themselves, the, the subjects themselves, those, you know, the, the working class, they have to acknowledge this reality, they have to have this knowledge themselves, right? So if they have this, if they if they have a concept that they that their reality is structured by them being part of a working class, that might actually change the reality. That might change the course of history. So I think this is where it's actually coming from. It's actually one of the one of the examples that the Frankfurt School give to critical knowledge, critical theory, is uh, Marxism. The other one being um, psychoanalysis, which I also kind of mentioned. And so I think it's I think it's the application. I think critical th- knowledge is really applying the tools of knowledge to knowledge construction itself to how knowledge comes about. And yeah, I think, you know, one of the key issues is for the subject or, you know, for, for, for the human being to be part of that process of forming. So, I mean, if we go back to this metaphor of psychotherapy, of a session, or not even a session, just being by yourself and kind of applying these ideas of of um psychoanalysis or, or psychology what happens in a session is not the therapist telling you something about yourself they might already know something but really the idea is for you to reach a point where you yourself can express this kind of knowledge because mm, how would i put it just Forming this knowledge is really part part of changing it, part of changing the um, the reality. Hope that that gives at least a preliminary answer. Yeah, no, I think it does. Um, and and there's a there's a related idea here I wanted to touch on. This is one you you also trace back to to Jürgen Habermas, uh, the idea of humans having what he called an emancipatory interest, because this is something you wrote about gives rise uh, to critical knowledge. Um, you, you, you described it as, you know, an interest in overcoming externally imposed dogmatism, internally induced compulsion, um, and interpersonal and social domination. You know, this is what gives rise to critical knowledge. So is, is the claim that all humans kind of baked within us carry this emancipatory interest, that it's a kind of innate thing? Wow, innate. I think, I think, I don't know if I want to call them innate, you know, I mean, going back to really the beginning of your, of the introduction to this conversation, you mentioned Darwin, which I loved because I, I mean, I never kind of thought about it in terms, you know, um, uh, 
when I'm thinking about, about technology. But I loved it because my assumption is that we don't need, I don't, I mean, I don't want to argue whether there's, there's, let's say, human nature or not, but I think we don't really need, we don't really need to kind of a conclusive answer uh, because, but, but yeah, my, my sort of, my proposition is that humans are really so flexible and we're such a historical entity that my, from my perspective is that emancipation is not innate. And I think that's what gets me scared, actually, or worried. Mm-hmm. I think before trying to emancipate ourselves as, as a species, we sort of had to have this belief that there is something like being an emancipated human being. And I think maybe there isn't, but this belief, this kind of uh, theology of freedom and emancipation gave us so many, so much of what we live with now, such, you know, like democracy and, you know, human rights. And I mean, this idea that, that we are able to somehow, we're not just an imprint of nature, we're not just an imprint of our parents, not just an imprint of our, I don't know, of our nation and of our culture. We have some kernel of, I don't want to call it individuality, but some kernel of freedom within us. And mm. so first we had to believe to believe in that. And I think that's in and of itself a modern belief, right? When, when people lived in in kind of pre-modern societies, it was really more about uh, belonging to the clan, belonging to the community and being one with the community. And I think my fear is not just that these machines undermine our freedom, but that in a way we're not going to miss it. You know, in a, I don't know, in, in 50 years time, yeah, sorry. It sounds a little bit like the metrics, right? So you have to, you have to, in a way. Yeah, I mean that's that's sort of a, you know it's it's kind of yeah. I, I have to be wary, you know, not not to go in these directions. But but we do have to kind of think about where it's going, right? I think freedom. This idea of yeah, freedom in the sense that that I described earlier is something that you have to believe in and to fight for, and to know that. Yeah, you, you're never going to achieve that. It's not like algorithms are the first enemy of freedom, right? I always give the example of, let's say, publicity and marketing. So that, you know, when my daughter tells me that she really, uh, she has to get the new Nike shoes. I mean, I know that, I mean, I know that she thinks that she needs it and she wants it. But let's say as a sociologist, objectively, I know that this want, this very personal want uh, was implanted into her. And I know how it's done, right? I know we know a little bit about the mechanics of that. So, yeah, I don't know if we're going to miss it (laughs) if we don't have that. I don't know if we I don't know if it's that innate in a way. Yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting framing, uh, and it does resonate with me that 
an emancipatory interest, or maybe even, you know, this interest and desire for the kind of freedom you're talking about is not innate, right? So for example, in the last episode of the podcast, I was speaking with the economist uh, Christian Arnsberger exactly about, you know, what economics would look like if it were built around this idea of fostering people's capability to act on an emancipatory interest. And he defined emancipation in, in a way that I think is relevant here, right? He defined it as a process of revealing that what often comes to appear to us as fixed and objective, you know, facts about how the world is and how our lives thus have to be are not objective at all, but are, are very often social constructions. They are things that have been molded through historical, political, social, cultural processes that are always ongoing. And I think you're right that the capacity to, to see things that way is not in line with the mind's kind of natural slope, right? The cognitive tendency is to see things as things, right? As concrete, discrete, objective structures, nouns, you know, rather than processes or verbs that are always in flux. Uh, the, the mind is like a, it's a knife and it carves up the world into these concepts so we can think with them. And I think that this emancipatory interest is actually one that has to labor against that cognitive tendency, right? Against the tendency to reify things. And I think that this connects really nicely to another theme of the podcast, which is what's going on right now in the world of, of psychedelics, right? One of the leading ideas in kind of the, the cognitive philosophy of psychedelics is that what they do is they relax our concretized beliefs about the world, right? They loosen the rigidity with which we've carved experience up into concepts that we can build these predictive models with. And even the very experience of, of being on psychedelics, you know, I'll speak from personal experience here, when I look at organic matter, like a tree or grass or even a stone, the visuals aren't hallucinations, right? That, that's a really misleading word, I think, especially for mushrooms. Uh, what I see is something I often describe as, as a thing that is ongoingly becoming itself, right? The matter that constitutes the tree appears visually as being literally in motion, almost like a like a volcano that's erupting, but the lava that's being erupted is then looping back into the bottom of the volcano just to cycle through that process again at very kind of fine-grained levels. And everything that I've kind of previously perceived as a discrete and, and unmoving object, like a stone, comes to appear in my visual perception as a process of always constructing and reconstructing itself in real time. And so I think that this idea of emancipation is actually very similar, that the, the concepts we have about the world and ourselves and the ways that we've come to believe the world simply works and things that are entertained as possible and susceptible to change or not, these can all be upended and revealed to be in flux. And that, to me, kind of opens up the space of, of you know, freedom to participate in nudging and, and intervening in that process. Yeah, wonderful. I think... Just to add that, I think it goes back to, to something that, that we talked about earlier, about this, I would call it, after Freud, uh, you know, emancipation and its discontent. So that there is something, there is something troubling about critical theory or critical knowledge is that, you know, at the end of the day, it undermine its own, it undermines its own basis right because if if right if knowledge is constructed then the knowledge about this construction is also constructed so there is something very um almost scary about it and i think i think you're right to say that the tendency and we see that you know in the last 
yeah, I mean, throughout modernity, this idea of objective knowledge, that you can know not just the world, but you can know human beings objectively with some machines or with some tools like surveys. You can just know what the public wants. You know, you know, you, you, you have this, um, uh, uh, you have intelligence um, uh, scores that can tell you who is more intelligent than another person or which group is more intelligent, etc. So that there's a way to really kind of know reality. And I think critical knowledge really tells you that the knowing, this knowing is in and of itself social, in and of itself constructed. And this fantasy, you know, this fantasy of, wow, you know, if, if, if a, Martian, a Martian came into Earth, we could just ask them something about beauty or about justice or whatever. No, there's no Martian. It's, it's all upon us to actually make a decision. And, and yeah, that's where, in a way, that's where, and I think Habermas deals with it beautifully, but that's where politics and knowledge and politics and science kind of touch a little bit each other, right? Where it gets a little bit risky because we do, we do want to sort of keep them apart, but they, they, there is something, if we as political entities, as political subjects also form our knowledge, there's always something a little bit Risky. I don't know. I, I kind of um, went overboard, but let's. I mean, <laughs> hope it was a little bit understood. No, that's it's great. Um, and so it's interesting. You know, I think we we've we've touched the three terms. I think pretty well, and I wanted to try to pull them together. And I think we have. So I might just piece together what I've taken as an answer and, and see what you think of it. Um, but you know, the, as I see the basic claim of your book, right? Algorithmic art, um, environments usher in a new kind of knowledge that undermines this enlightenment project of critical knowledge. And in so doing, it undermines subjectivity. I, I, when, I, when I think about what that means in practice, I actually think your example of psychoanalysis is really interesting in terms of pointing out that which is being subverted. Um, so tell me if I have this right, but you, know, you described how in the process of, of speaking with a therapist, the therapist can't just tell you what they have learned is the thing, you know, is your, your neuroticism. That doesn't quite work. What the therapist tries to do is, is help you come to that conclusion on your own, right? Precisely. You are, you are involved in the, in the process of, of that realization, the production exactly. of that knowledge and what algorithms are doing. And I think you know, we have to acknowledge it in large part because of the abundance of information we can no longer sort through manually on our own, but what algorithms are doing are, they're doing the process for us. They are the therapist telling us what we need rather than the one bringing us to, to reach our own conclusion. Is, is that somewhat reflective of the argument? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the book was translated into the Hebrew and they offered, um, um, the publishing house offered a really good title, which is Thinking for You, right? So, mm. so it kind of neatly captures this, this thing. I think what is, what is I mean, what is unique in our situation is that we cannot interfere with the process of thinking of the algorithms or the, the these machines. So that okay, let, let, let me put it this way: I'm not against having all these aids, all these tools that help us know ourselves, 
right? So that, for example, the therapist, that's, that's another human being external to you that is actually helping you to understand yourself. And the diary writing was, you know, externalizing yourself and then reading it and coming to new insights about your experiences and who you are and what, as I said, what hinders you. Okay. But what is happening with this machine and what is really new about it is that it's, it's not communicative. I mean, it just it's, it's just giving you the results. Actually, the machine itself or the people who are handling it, they don't know exactly how they know you. So they just know they should get as much info or as much data as possible. A lot of those algorithms are already written by another algorithm so that the way to validate this knowledge that they know about you is by practice, whether it works or it doesn't, whether, whether their recommendation actually uh, is helpful for you. So we know that, for example, 80% of the movies watched on Netflix are a result of their recommendation engine. So we know that people are reacting to that, but we don't know how they're doing it. And probably they don't know that. And you, as a, a, definitely as an individual, you have no idea how they reach this conclusion. So you cannot sort of deconstruct it. You cannot read through the text and say something. You cannot participate, as, as you said, we cannot participate in the production of this knowledge. And so we cannot critique it. We cannot sort of defend ourselves because it doesn't happen in natural language. It, it happens with, you know, digital language, basically. Yeah. And I think that's really, you know, because one of the questions that, and, and you, you touch on this frequently throughout your book, one of the questions that I was kind of carrying with me was really thinking about how different uh, the kind of algorithmic, you know, threat to subjectivity here is relative to, you know, just plain old mass media in the 20th century, right? I mean, the, the Frankfurt School had a whole thing on homogenizing humans mm -hmm. and producing one-dimensional man and through the culture industry and this and that. And it seems to me that the, the crux, the difference is that the mass media people watched when, when the entirety of a country sat down at 7 p.m. to watch the same news program, that media was not tailored to the, it was not giving you knowledge about yourself. It was a single one-dimensional, you know, one-to-many kind of production broadcast. Whereas it seems to me that what differentiates algorithms is these are tailored to the individual. And I think that ushers in what you described before as this kind of reflective relationship where we now engage in kind of thinking about how we define and see ourselves in relationship to the, to this media. How, how do you think about that, that difference between the mass media model and then the algorithmic model? Yeah. So I want to make actually another distinction within the mass media history, which I think is really interesting and really shows you very well the difference in how algorithms see audi the audience or users and how the mass media look at them. Because the mass media, actually, I mean, when it, be when it began, let's say in the beginning of the, the 20th century uh, in the West, um, you're right. It really looked at the audience as one homogenous bulk 
mostly thinking about the audience in terms of its producers. So, you know, white, male, kind of mid-upper class people, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But then the mass media actually went through a process of thinking, who are those people watching us? And starting a process of, the, you know, we might call segmentation, right? Segmenting mm. the audience and saying, hey, what about... Hey, 50% of our viewers are women. They might have a different interest. So there you saw that in, in magazines or even uh, TV networks that they were starting to produce different content for different audience segments. But look at what happens when you have these women's magazines then let's say as a woman in the 50s or 60s in America, you would look at that. And because all of that is happening, again, in natural language, and you would say, this is what Althusser call interpolation, right? You look at the magazine that is saying to you, hey, woman, look at me. Uh, you're, you're, you're a woman, so you're supposed to be uh, really interested in pampering yourself and cosmetics and taking care of your husband and kids. And you could critique it and you could resist it, right? Because it approaches you as a woman telling you who you are and then feminism kicks in and, and you resist it. So there's, there's kind of a healthy conversation. This is a political conversation, so the mass media treats you one way, tells you what it thinks about you. It thinks that you're a woman that's supposed to do ABC and you might resist it. What happens with contemporary digital media is, first of all, that segmentation is no longer in bulk. It's not about political categories like race, income, class, education, etc., but it's actually much more fragmented. So you and I might find ourselves in more or less the same rubric on the Amazon metrics because we're kind of interested in the same topics, the same types of, of books. Now, the media, first of all, I don't know, I don't know how they see me. So, I mean, they don't, they don't interpolate me as a white person or a Jewish person or, right, or a man, I'm interpolated as, I don't know, N3764, which is like one of thousands of rubrics of how they kind of catalog different people. In a way, even if you have the mass media, even if it was racist, you could resist it. So it was a political conversation and people did resist it. That's what the Frankfurt School was all about. That's what, uh, you know, cultural studies in the UK was all about. And But now it's kind of depoliticized. You're, it's completely personalized. You don't know exactly how they see you. And in a way, the algorithm doesn't really see you in those categories, in those Categories which I would say are in natural language. It's how we see society as comprised of, you know, these social demographics. I think um, 
you know, one, one way to describe it, and that, that's not my terms, is, is kind of post-demographic society, mm. right? Post-demographic knowledge. Wow. Man, there's a lot there. That, that, I think that, that's right, though, focusing on that, that, that shift that, that clarifies it um, in a lot of ways. The post-demographic idea, I hadn't heard that one, though. That's interesting. I'm going to have to look into that. Um, you know what this makes me think of, though? There's, we touched on this a little bit. There's a kind of increasingly common uh, critique of algorithms, which will focus on how repeated interfacing with them actively makes us more predictable, uh, trains them to better understand our behavior, but also trains us to trust, you know, their recommendations more and the spirals into this, you know, ever more algorithmically right. pre predictable humans. Um, and I find that interesting and I find it compelling, but I also think it gets even more compelling when you zoom out from individuals and you look at culture. Um, algorithms, you know, you're just talking about this. It, I always find it interesting, you know, when, for example, my father will say something like, you know, this algorithm, it's, it, it wants to know this about me or, or whatnot. But, but algorithms don't care about individuals. They care about demographics, right? That, that's where mm -hmm. they make their money is being able to predict a demographic. It doesn't care about Oshan Jarrow in particular. Insofar, oh, it only does insofar as I feed into its demographic predictability. And I think that this dovetails really nicely with an idea from the predictive processing realm of cognitive science. Um, so I, I want to set that it's a bit of a tangent, but I think it might be worth it. The, the basic idea, you know, if anyone isn't familiar, that, you know, in the Bayesian brain predictive processing or free energy realm is that the brain is ultimately trying to minimize surprise or uncertainty. That, you know, subjectivity is this internally generated model and it updates its predictions based on sensory data, fine tunes that model. And it does this in order to render its environment more predictable and ultimately to, to carry on existing. Now, somewhere in the literature on that, someone asked, well, what if the brain got so good at internally modeling the outside world that it just never got surprised? What if it succeeded in keeping uncertainty mm. or free energy to an absolute zeroed out minimum? And it turns out that there are a number of really undesirable effects you can draw out from that. It would actually be a, paint a pretty bad picture. And so Andy Clark, who's this philosopher of mind and he's a big player in the predictive processing world, he wrote a great paper on this, I thought. And his point was that that won't ever happen because of cultural evolution. He, he, he kind of framed the function of cultural evolution as to shake up our environments just enough so mm. that our predictive minds, you know, never get too good or too perfect at, at the kind of success rate of its predictions. So, you know, there's something very adaptive and fundamental about thwarting that, that prediction perfection. And on one hand, I think you could argue that cultural evolution will do the same thing for algorithms as we're talking about. It might thwart, you know, efforts to render humans perfectly predictable. But on the other hand, if algorithms start shaping not only humans, but culture itself, and they sit upstream of that process of cultural evolution, which, which I think is a very simple case to make, right? These, these, they control mm -hmm. the movies we watch, the music we listen Absolutely. to, the information, even the people we date now, you know, couples are more and more forming through algorithmically matched uh, platforms. So th that kind of paints a bit of a, of a troubling picture. I'm curious how you see both kind of the process and the prospects for how algorithms not only affect individual human development, but that larger kind of cultural evolution. Mm. First of all, it was really fascinating. I love these thoughts. 
and the connection between you know the mind and and those machines that in a way try to mimic the mind and um, well I would say suppress it and and uh, supersede it um, yeah it's interesting I don't think I gave a lot of thoughts uh, about that about what it's what it's doing to our culture in a way. So I'm, I'm still, I'm kind of, uh, I'm really fascinated by, by the prospects that you were um, painting, but I, I'm not sure I have something more intelligent to say about that. <laughs> That's totally fine. It, it's, I think, you know, it's something I forget where there was somewhere you, you touched on this uh, lightly in your book, but it, on one hand, it's very clear the ways in which algorithms seem well poised to be determinants of culture. Um, on the other hand, and I think this is actually a good doorway into, into the next kind of question I wanted to ask, I don't think the picture is as dark or fixed maybe as it might seem. I think that the question it raises is, in what ways can we participate with algorithms such that culture is not something that is thrust upon us, but there's more of a democratic deliberation process? And so th this leads into maybe one of, one of the biggest questions that I felt I took away from your work or the question that lingers with me as I'm reading it, you know, is, is whether algorithms inherently or by definition, you know, supplant and undermine subjectivity and, you know, exclude the self from the process of knowledge production, or if it is possible for algorithms, you know, even recommendation algorithms, like the, one we've been, the ones we've been talking about, if these can augment and enhance and enrich that process, you know, perhaps under different structural conditions or more specifically, uh, different regimes of data governance. And I have a few questions on this theme. So let's start you know, with the question of, of how do we point to what determines in your mind whether a form of media enhances or subverts subjectivity? Because you, you do acknowledge in your book and you, you have a couple of really interesting historical examples. You already mentioned the personal diary. You know, there, there are ways in which forms of media can be kind of complementary along this road of, of, of self-production. So is there an example you'd like to point to and kind of how media can support us in that process? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm sort of already off to my new subject, my new interest, which is really kind of the materiality of media and mm -hmm. how it changed our way of thinking and actually our way of thinking of ourselves. And, so, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of readings about now about oral culture and the move mm. from an oral, oral culture to written culture. And, I mean, this is a really good example when people started writing. So this was sort of really a new machine for thinking. You could suddenly, um, you know, words were not so ephemeral anymore. You could just put them, you know, into a piece of paper and you know, inscribe them. And so it totally changed how we remember things and how we can recall things later. And it also had a very, very important effect on, on objectivity because suddenly words were not tied simply to a person that pronounces them, but they were sort of, they had their own, their own existence in the world. So, those things are, I mean, my, my short answer to your question, how do we know, is, unfortunately, is that we wait and see. I mean, I mean it's <laughs> right. really, you know, yeah, in a way, 
so I mean, I would put it this way, you know, there's, there's, let's say, a kind of distant, cool way of looking at the world as a scientist that, you know, is kind of, and I have that as well. So I look at it really fascinated, really trying to figure out what's going on and really knowing that there's very little chance that I'm actually, I don't have any tools of actually knowing exactly how it will play out. But then I'm also a political being and I don't want to wait for that to happen. I want to interject. <laughs> I want to, right? So, so I'm also trying to figure out where it could go. So sort of outline the possible futures. I think that's what you've been asking me. So is there, is there a future for algorithms that I can see which is actually liberating or emancipatory? And it's really, it's so hard to answer that. It's a little bit because you already, you already set the stage, right? You said maybe if there's a different data governance, if platforms were public rather than, you know, owned by private companies, if they were, I mean, there's so many ways. So it's almost like thinking, you know, when, when someone asks you, you know, if you were an elephant and then they're, wait, but if I'm an elephant, do I know that I was, I mean, it's so, it's so difficult for me. No, I mean, I mean, so many things would have to change. And yeah, I, I don't know how to answer that, to be honest, really, because I mean, that's, that's, one of, that's one of the key critiques that I get is that, let's say, Marxists would tell me, yeah, you know, it's not the technology. It's because, it's, it's because of data governance. It's because all this is being structured by those corporations. And uh, yeah, I, I, they have a point. I agree with that. But I think there is something more there. You know, I kind of made a shift in my interest you know, studying the internet for, I don't know, 20 years or internet culture, however we call it. This shift, you know, from for many years, I've been really sort of interested in, in kind of Marxian theory and, and using that to understand how the internet works. But really in this last work, I don't think I even, I don't think I even uh, cite Marx. So I was really kind of shifting away, not to say that, that suddenly I forgot about capitalism, but I said, I kind of, I was really interested to think about, can I really just focus on the machine itself? And of course there is, you know, you're, you're this, you leave some blind spots, but I was really interested to figure out something about epistemology, something about how we create knowledge you know, so it was a shift for me, not to say that that I kind of forgot about the other axis of analysis that you have to implement, but I think there is something about how this technology works, uh, which goes beyond, let's say, ownership of data. But, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I could imagine something like that. I could imagine, for example, I think one of the problems that we have is that to really use a Marxist term, the the means of production are totally in the hands of, let's say, five companies. Because they're the only one, even if they let you have the data, your data, it would be very hard to actually process it in an intelligent way. You really need those huge machines to that are able to process so much data and 
engineer new algorithms that would make sense of this data. So um, it's really like a huge factory. It's really, really hard to think about, let's say, community data centers or something, mm. if that's what you're kind of, kind of maybe hinting to. Mm. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. That, that was really clarifying to hear you talk about that because, well, yeah, when I got towards the end of the book, the question on my mind was data governance. Um, and I was, I've been yeah. very influenced. There's a, a woman named Salome Viljoen who I think just wrote a phenomenal paper on this. And she had a really interesting frame where she said, you know, look, the two critiques of data uh, and, and algorithms in this whole world so far, she, she outlined them as one was the proprietarian critique, which effectively, as you mentioned, pointed at uh, the ownership, kind of the, the, the critique kind of lended itself towards, we should own our own data, right? Apply private property to the data we produce, you know, so on and so forth. Maybe have some data dividends, give people like 20 bucks a year. Um, okay, the other the other camp, which we've already talked about too, is kind of the Shoshana Zuboff, Douglas Rushkoff world of, I think she called mm-hmm. it the dignitarian critique, but you know, this idea that algorithms can only imperfectly see humans and all that is left out uh, is, is very, it's crucial, it's important. It is that which defines our humanity. And so it kind of lends itself towards people's right to not be datafied, you know, so it's privacy rights, it's the, the right to opt out, all these kinds of things. And these are both important, but she kind of, she feels that they're both insufficient to the task at hand. Her, her perspective is, is to see data as social relations and the way in which they, they modulate them. And she looks to regimes of democratic data governance as a way of kind of trying to bypass the shortcomings of those two other critiques. And I found that really interesting because, you know, when I got to the end of your book, what was on my mind was, I mean, maybe it's, maybe I'm an optimist or maybe I'm a Marxist, according to how you put it, but the, the idea that, yeah, I don't think it's inherent or intrinsic to algorithms that they will exploit and subvert subjectivity. I would like to think that it has to do with the environments in which they're deployed, you know, which is one that the A, yes, they're, you know, privately owned, operated for profit. They're also employed in in, uh, an environment with just woefully inadequate data governance regimes, no privacy, the whole thing. Um, And I, I, I do feel that I can imagine a world where not only, so on one hand, we have democratic data governance. On the other hand, there's transparency, knowing the construction of the algorithm. But I think the thing I'm even most interested in is user control over the contours of the algorithm. And this is something you touched on with a few examples too. But if if, if we can play a part in fine tuning the kinds of nudges that the algorithms give us, I, I can imagine that they can maybe function as tools. And, and the example I want to ground this in, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you touched on this was, was Netflix. There are folks doing a kind of DIY active rebellion right. on Netflix where, you know, they'll click on a movie not to watch it. They click and click off, click and click off a whole bunch because they know that in so doing, it'll, you know, nudge the algorithm in a particular direction. So they want to play, they want to exert agency in the kind of person that the algorithms see them to be, and also the kind of person they, they nudge them to become. So I think it's interesting to, I, I understand what you, what you were doing now, trying to step back and, and just see the technology in and of itself. I, I wonder, I guess, to my mind, the question is, can we formalize the same logic in that micro Netflix rebellion at scale? And maybe that's too optimistic, you know, maybe corporations or public entities won't hand over that kind of control. But but how do you see user control? Do you see that as a site of optimism or do you think it's a little insufficient to the task? 
Yeah, I well, I would I would now try to um, kind of sabotage your optimism. I don't want to <laughs> Great. Uh, to end on an, <laughs> on an optimistic note. No, I'm, I'm joking. But yeah, I I, I want I, I want to say something which is it's quite speculative. I think what you just described this kind of well, let's call it kind of sabotaging or trying to sabotage the Netflix system by lying to it is actually really a good instance of a very kind of non-communicative form of engagement with another entity. I'm not saying it's not going to work, but it's also turning us, it also really changes the terms of what for me would be a good society, but also a good, better, let's say, uh, well-being. So, let, let me try to let me try to kind of um, push something forward, which I, I mean, just uh, is to say, you know. So you, you mentioned Zuboff saying data as a form of social relations, and I see her point, but I think uh, what's happening with big data and algorithms as a machine, and regardless of the governance, is they're, let's say, that, that we sort of getting further and further away from, let's call it language or natural language. It is a form of language, mm. but it's not something that humans can interact with. And I think we, we kind of need to hold and think about that for a second. This movement, I mean, you talked about, you know, kind of this difference between, let's say, technology and tools, right? Which is kind of a Heideggerian perspective. You know, something that, like a tool is something that you are the agent you're using and a technology is more like it's kind of using you or um, working more independently. So I think we're moving away from when data and algorithms are used to understand ourselves as human beings or to, to as you said, to create culture at large then you're starting to engage with entities that you have no way of really speaking with. So you might find a way to kind of sabotage here and there. You know, I have a lot of people telling me in one of my chapters, I talk about um, Waze, the, the navigational uh, app. Mm. Yeah. A lot of people tell me, I just had this radio interview and... The host told me, you know, I have this thing that I want to resist it. So I'm not listening to it. I'm going to, it tells me to go right. I go left and boom, it goes, there it goes. Like it actually gives me two minutes more. I mean, two minutes less in my uh, ETA. And so I, again, well, you know, doing my job, trying to kind of uh, sabotage his optimism. I'm telling him, well, you know, that's part of the plan, really. The way that these navigational systems work, I mean, they don't have eyes. Their only way of knowing what the situation is, is that they're using you as a control group. So I actually, I found this a technical paper of Waze, I think it was either Waze or Google's um, engineers talking about that. They're always doing like A-B testing. So they will always move, they would always move some of the traffic through, they know in advance that it actually takes two minutes more to 
to reach through that line, but they have to move them because at some point it's going to be, you know, things will change. It's, you know, uh, traffic is also always very dynamic. So what, what I'm saying is that these forms of resistance of resistance are maybe a way for these people to really get like better recommendations from Netflix, but there you have it. Now they're going to get better recommendations. So they're really, um, they're really <laughs> being part of, of, of how it's supposed to work. And Netflix is just going to say, Hey, thank you for letting us know that you actually want to have, you want to watch more serious dramas right. rather than silly comedies. So I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying there's, you know, there's nothing to do, but I think if we're going to do something, it should really be on a more sort of political level, you know, policy, etc. But I don't know, interesting times. I don't know where it's going, really. I, 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 it's really funny that you say that you, you, you found some optimism there. I'm happy for you. I really finished writing that and felt so pessimistic that I said, okay, my next project, I don't, I don't want to deal with it anymore. I'm just going to something uh, completely different. <laughs> That's fine. It's a good balance. Um, but <laughs> here's, here's my, other, my other shot at optimism too, the other thing that I think maybe at a higher level, but I also took this away, away from your book. I'm curious what you think. You know, one of, one of the things that this conversation around data governance and algorithmic environments uh, really drives home to me is this this reciprocal relationship between our environments and subjectivity, or, or maybe more broadly, human development. Um, you know how, mm-hmm. in designing our economic environments, we're designing for the kinds of selves that we want to become and that we want our our fellow humans to become. And this is something that you know the classical economists, Karl Smarth, uh, Karl Smarth. Uh, Karl Marx, Adam Smith, too, you know, we're very deeply attuned to and, and concerned with, you know, you have Marx on alienation and what alienated labor does to the mind of the worker. You have Adam Smith on how the division of labor gone too far. He has some really harsh words for what that does to the torpor of the mind. Um, so I, I, and I, you know, for me personally, too, this goes very much for anti-poverty policy, uh, the forgotten effort to reduce the working week. But, but I also think it's, it's more explicit in these conversations around algorithms. You know, as we design and decide and regulate or not uh, the incentives that guide our media environments, what we're doing is we're designing the informational ecologies that we're going to exist both in and through. And I, I wonder if, if you see this realm of, you know, media theory meets economics kind of as bringing back this maybe old political economy focus on the relationship between our environments and human development? Because that's something I would love to see, that to come back to the fore. Uh, or, or am I being a little optimistic? Can you deflate that? Say, say something, say, say more about that, because I'm still trying to grapple with this because you, you put those those two things together, and I want to uh, mm. I want to have a more sense of what you're thinking of. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm thinking of is uh, if if you if we go with the Karl Karl Marx Adam Smith time, you know the the notion. Yes, you know, Smith of course was a moral philosopher. He was he was deeply concerned with these kinds of questions, and in in their writing, you find a very explicit care given to the kinds of humans that we become by virtue of existing in our economic environments. And 
Then in the period after the classical economists, we can look at the 20th century, you know, uh, excluding folks like the Frankfurt School who were on the fringe. I think they were still making this case in, in much more even forceful terms. But you have kind of mainstream classical economics became something where the question of designing an economy was separated from the question of designing human beings, right? We, mm. we came under the thrall of these, these categories of efficiency and growth. And we, I think, you know, we used them as proxies for everything that we still felt we held dear. But I think we got so enchanted by the proxy that the underlying connection between, you know, how those environments were having these deeper impacts on humans themselves, I think were kind of put into the backseat to, to places like the Frankfurt School. So what I would like to think is that what the media environment does, what algorithms do, what engaging with Netflix every day and, and you know dating algorithms, what these do is really thrust back in our face this relationship that you know if we do not take action in designing these environments in ways that we feel are conducive to the kinds of humans we want to become, they will do that for us, or you know, it will happen in this kind of behind our backs, so to speak, and and that's probably not best. So I'd like to think it brings that connection back to the fore. Well, I, I, I I'd like to join your optimism. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's so interesting because you have these, um, you know, economists in the in the twentieth century. They really had to imagine quite a stable human being right that you know wants to uh to, to make profit blah 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 so very stable and so that you know the their, their theories would work out and i feel the same about what i find out in those you know media or informational environments where as you said i mean they really want to you talked about prediction so they really want to get to the points where I have this quote from uh, HBO um, uh, CEO saying, you know, there's going to come a time where you're just going to sit in front of the screen and we'll just know exactly what you want to watch, right? Just according to data that we get from your day and what you've done, what day of the week it is and how many people are sitting there, etc. So this kind of total control and I think as you put it very beautifully when you talked about culture, culture being always on the move uh, and on always unexpected. So I think the, the type of human being that they would want to, to create is really not a subject, but an object. Someone who is like a stone that is totally predictable, that if you know, if you have the data, you know the results for sure. You know exactly what he's going to do. So I think, yes, I think, well, if there's any, because I'm really not dealing with it, but if there's any political uh, contribution to my book is to kind of raise awareness to that and to be part of that, let's say, movement that you wish would rise or emerge that would say, hey, if, if we are not engaging now, they would actually be successful in creating this human being. Uh, yeah, where we're alienated from our data, information, etc. I mean, however we want to put it. Mm. Yeah, I, I think you. I think you put it. I think you hit the nail on the head with the first thing you said there. I think that you know it, when we think about the image of the human that arose in the post-classical period in the 20th century, it's, I think it's exactly right that economists adopted a static model 
both of the economy and of the human. Right? You can trace this back, you know, very literally uh, with Leon Walrus, you know, the kind of marginalist school of economics went into the physics textbooks and took the equation for a, a system at equilibrium. And that equilibrium equation became the basis for all of, you know, neoclassical economics. Uh, of course, you know, equilibrium being the the opposite of a dynamic system. And, and there's a lot of, you know, this is changing now. We have complexity science who are bringing in non-equilibrium systems into how we model economies. But so you had on, you had the economic portion of, we adopted a static model of the economy. And you also had the, the human portion. We adopted a static model of the human, which was a purely theoretical construct that, you know, listeners will know well, this utility maximizing rational human being whose preferences are totally separate and unrelated from the structure of the economy. Um, so I think right, that, you right. know, I think you're right to point to the static nature of the, of the image of the human they adopted. <sighs> wow. Um, we've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> yeah, I like, I, I feel, I feel like this has come to a pretty good place to come to a rest, but I do wonder, you know, if, if anything is still lingering on your mind that you wanted to throw into the mix. Uh, no, I think really we covered so much and actually you surprised me. So I had to come up with really, um, it was wonderful, actually. It was really good, really interesting. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. that that's good. That's uh, one way to measure success, I think, of a podcast is, can you surprise your guest? <laughs> exactly. You did. Um, wonderful. Well, Aran, thank you. This was, this was such a pleasure, both getting to go through your work and uh, to, to speak with you here. And, and I, are, are you working on another book? You mentioned a little bit. What's your, what's your next focus? Well, my next project is about calendars, about um, actually daily planners that really picked up only from, let's say, mid-19th century, where people really started to kind of plan, well, predict and plan the future and write it down. And yeah, so I'm really going back to... Um, of course, we're still using calendars today, Google Calendar and all these um, digital ones. But I'm really interested actually in the beginning of that and how it changed perception of time. And yeah, so that's what I'm working on right now. Oh, that's fascinating. I look forward to reading it. Great. Well, um, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank uh, you, Sean. See you online. That'll do it. Uh, if you want to find any of the resources that we mentioned or a transcript of the conversation, you can find the episode page at musingmind.org slash podcast and clicking on it on Fisher. If you want to help support the show, you can share it on social media, leave an Apple podcast review or become a financial supporter on Patreon. Um, and as I mentioned in the intro, I'm thinking about a, a follow-up episode with someone who might be able to speak more towards the policy end of what we can do to intervene in and, and change these algorithmic environments so that they do slope more towards human emancipation rather than these darker alternatives. Um, so if you have any thoughts along those lines or ideas for guests who can speak to that, please do reach out. Uh, there's a contact form on the Musing Mind site. There's also a newsletter you can respond to. And that's it. I hope everyone is well, and I'll talk to you next time.